And this morning, what we're going to kind of be transitioning is more to focus in on the mission of Mercygate. How does the name, the meaning of the name, inform the mission of Mercygate? So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul has just finished up that amazing theological rundown, talking about how God has been sovereign in our salvation. But then he stops to pray, verse 15, and says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul is praying that a regenerate people would receive the Spirit, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and notice this, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus has been given to the church which is his body, the fullness of him, here's the mission part, who fills all in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray and we'll jump into that text. God, we come before you afresh this morning saying, wow, we, we carry need constantly for you. Uh, Jesus, as, the, as you are the one, the sip that satisfies, the fountainhead uh, of God's presence. We, we ask for a fresh impartation of your presence even this morning as we look into your word. We thank you that we don't just do this stuff, set up chairs, go through some sort of religious ritual because we just want to kind of check off the boxes of duty uh, that we've performed, but thank you that you are a God who is real. You are a God who is present. You are a God who is ready to engage, work in and work through your people. So, Jesus, we pray that your spirit would be near to us, working in us, bringing the truth of this text to our hearts and minds. And beyond the moment right now, God, I pray for real life church as they're going through a transition. Grant them something of wisdom during this season. God, I pray that they wouldn't just rely on all kinds of church strategy and what you might read in a book, but they would be sensitive to your own voice, to your own desires for them as a church. So I ask protection upon them as well as they go through this transition. And God, we feel it deep within our hearts, uh, particularly even throughout this season, as even as a local church, we felt the loss we felt the loss due to addiction, and even now we find ourselves desiring to see even those who've walked away for this time to come back from a time of addiction. So God, we, we desire that you would truly be the sip that satisfies that the thirsty soul might find satisfaction in you. God, I, I pray for, for Needle Park and the whole corridor down there in particular. God, I pray that the church would rise up, that the gospel would be brought to bear in intangible ways as well as in proclamation, such that your glory might be known, such that they might come to know, those who are struggling with addiction, that they might come to know truly something of the sip that satisfies. You don't hold that out as just kind of some sort of tease to us. You hold that truth out because it is in you to bring restoration to the broken places. And so, Jesus, we say, have your uh, work in that area. God, do a grand work. If it's to stir up a revival down there through unlikely means, let it be. God, we invite you just to allow your spirit to come mightily upon them, to banish the darkness, to bring light to where they're 
is darkness. So God, do this work. We look to you. We look to you. Our hearts are heavy with the need, but where else can we go but to you? The one who truly holds in your hand life. The one who truly is light amidst darkness. So God, we ask that you would do this work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, If you have a phone and you got the live stream link, there are some notes from what I'm going to be going over. Because once again, it's a little more teachy than preachy. Although this is the stuff that is so near and dear to my heart that I might get a little preachy. Who knows? Uh, But Ephesians chapter 1, looking at this prayer from Paul. Uh, When we think about the mission of the church, you guys know, all right, It's, it's not new news to you. Like, when you talk about the mission of the church, typically you're going to the Great Commission, and it's no surprise that the mission of the church is to make what? Anybody? Disciples, right. Followers of Jesus. And, and how many times have you, have you heard those kind of sermons? This is what the church is about, to make followers of Jesus, right? And how many times, after hearing those sermons, do you walk away, kind of head down, <laughs> a bit more burdened, feeling a bit more guilt about now having kind of more to do. And in fact, not just more to do, but seemingly like something to do, make followers of Jesus that you feel completely incapable to do. Like, how can I make followers of Jesus? How can I boldly proclaim the gospel to those who don't know him? How can I really point people to Jesus? I don't know about you, but the majority of times that I've heard a sermon on the mission of the church, I leave a little bit more guilt-ridden and a little bit more kind of burdened down with things now that I have to do that are, is already you know, difficult with a busy schedule and what have you. Here's my take on all this. I think there's something that's missing within the church today. I think there's something missing when it comes to understanding the mission of the church. That when we would hear sermons about the mission of the church, we would go away guilt-ridden rather than glad. Like, this is incredible. I think there's something missing. And I'm going to propose that Ephesians chapter 15 through verse 23 gets at what is missing. And the question of what is missing, I think, is best understood by Martin Lloyd-Jones when he states it this way, the great need of the church from every standpoint is a great visitation of the Holy Spirit. And it is only as she, the church, receives this will she be enabled to understand again, to grasp again, and to preach again to others the saving message of the gospel of the Son of God. He says nothing is more vital. That's an astonishing statement made by an old, dead, reformed theologian, right, who, who, who largely spoke to a non-charismatic congregation who was a medical doctor who understood the psychological and the scientific stuff that that perhaps would go into thinking through the experience of, 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 of the Spirit of God as being something of manipulation. He was aware of all of these things. And, and, and yet he was one who would say above and beyond and through all those concerns, still the quintessential, the primary thing that the church needs is something of an experience of the presence of God. It's to say this, this being the big idea this morning, that the presence of God must empower the mission of the church. The presence of God must empower the mission of the church. Now, we've talked through this before, and, um, you know, there's been objections and questions and concerns, one of which is this. Haven't we received all that is to be received of God's presence? Didn't we receive everything at salvation? What is there more to be received if we received everything when we came to faith? We received the Holy Spirit. We received the presence of God when we came to faith. What more is there to receive? Well, what I believe is inferred from Paul's prayer here is not only that God's presence is essential for the church's mission, but that God's presence, a conscious experience of God's presence, must be altogether pursued. 
And it's in that conscious experience that I believe empowers the mission of the church. So let me just work through those two particular points. First, laying out the fact that God's presence is essential for God's mission. Obviously, we could go to texts like John 7, like we've already been in, or Acts 2 to establish this point. We desperately need the presence of God for the sake of the church's mission. But what many will say from John 7 or Acts 2, that narrative is never normative. You don't look to the, the Gospels, you don't look to Acts to see something that is normative for the church today. I totally disagree with that, but that's why I'm going to Ephesians. So you can't get caught up with that objection. I want to go to Ephesians, which is, as many scholars have said, the constitutional document of the local church. If you want to know what the local church is about, you go to the book of Ephesians. If you want to know what our mission is, you're going to the book of Ephesians. And so let's see from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. Let's see if God's presence is essential for the church's mission. Right after Paul has opened this letter, he's, you know, he's given that incredible theological rundown of God's saving grace upon our lives. Paul stops and he stops to pray for the church in Ephesus. So I want to go backward through his prayer to establish this point that God's presence is essential for the church's mission. So verse 22, notice what's being stated here. He says, for he, God the Father, put all things under his, that's Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Just notice, Jesus has been exalted over all things by the Father. There is no rival to Jesus. Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And it's Jesus then who has uniquely been given to his church. Usually in scripture we see the church has been given to Jesus. This time Paul's turning it around. It's that the church, or Jesus, has been given to the church. It's an incredible blessing. In other words, Jesus has been granted to us. And furthermore, how is the church described? It's described as the body, the fullness of Christ. Got to stop and understand what's being said here. The fullness has in view the very idea of God's manifest presence. It's a term that's borrowed from the Old Testament, just as we saw last week, as the presence of God would show up to the temple in manifest glory, and he would fill the temple, and the priests couldn't even stand up under the weight, under the glory of God's presence in the temple. It was a manifestation of God's presence, and here the term is the same term that's used to describe his manifest presence in the Old Testament. Paul is bringing that up again to say, church, <laughs> you are that which Christ inhabits. His manifest glory, his fullness is to be known in and through you. You are his chosen instrument. And, and therefore to do what? Well, Paul says, to fill all in all. To fill all in all with what? Well, with what we've been filled with, which is the fullness of Christ, right? The manifest presence of Christ granted to us is to flow from us so that it fills all in all. Isn't that the book of Acts? What happens? The Holy Spirit shows up, is poured out upon God's people, and you watch this filling of all in all from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Everything gets filled, as it were, with the presence of God through the expansion of the church globally. In other words, we could say it this way, that the church is to host the presence of God. The manifest presence of God, as Paul is speaking here. The fullness of his presence is to flow in us and through us to see all filled with his presence. That's a big vision that Paul is putting before us. But that's the mission of the church. 
We, we could say, yes, the mission of the church is to make followers of Christ. Or Paul will say it like this. Yeah, the manifest presence is to dwell in you and flow from you so that it fills all in all. It's just another way of saying, go make disciples. Go make followers of Jesus so that as he fills you, you might be the, river, the channel that, through which the river of his presence flows such that the thirsty find something of the presence of God through you. Right? So that's the mission of the church. We could say it perhaps this way. The church is to be a river, not a reservoir. Right? We're, we're not just to house the presence of God, just gathered together to do our own thing, but we are to be the people whom the manifest presence of God rests upon and flows from. We are to be a river, not a reservoir. God's presence is to be in us and to flow through us for the sake of this broken and thirsty world. And this then is expressly why Paul prays as he does. He shows us the big vision of the church's mission, but then verse 17, he's praying something here. Christ has been given to the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. But verse 17, as we kind of back through the prayer of Paul, he begins to state that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. Notice what he's saying. You've got to slow it down when Paul's speaking. because It's always too much. Get the idea of what he's saying. He's praying that a people who have already come to faith, who have already been regenerate, they are the church. He's praying that those who are regenerate might have something more of the Spirit granted to them. So when you come to faith in Jesus, do you receive the Spirit? Yes, you do. But he's saying that there's more of the Spirit to be received. Right? So he's praying to that end, that the church would be given something of the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. And Paul prays for the Spirit to awaken the eyes of their heart. This experience of the manifest presence that is granted to us by the Spirit in ever-increasing ways, as we even see from the book of Acts, he's filling, he's falling upon people, he's demonstrating his presence as a rushing wind shaking the house at times. Incredible things are happening. But what Paul goes on to say is that this spirit would give us eyes to see and to know something of a conscious experience of that presence. He says that our, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Just like you have physical you know, senses, taste, touch, smell, that kind of stuff. So Paul is saying there's a spiritual sensitivity to the experience of God's presence. And it's that the Spirit would come to you in such a way that he would grant you sensitivity to know something. That you would know something of his manifest presence. And the question, okay, in what way are we to experience the manifest presence of this Spirit that Paul is asking to come upon this church? He states it this way. He states that this church by the Spirit, who would give us eyes, enlightened eyes, would come to know three things. Before we get into the three things, you've got to take the term to know, as Paul says, that you would know something. And the knowing is not just this academic, hey, I can check the box off because I studied it, I've heard it in a systematic theology book, I've read it in my Bible. It's not that kind of just academic knowing. This is not some sort of unconscious knowing. This is a conscious knowing. At least that's the terms that Martin Lloyd-Jones will oftentimes use. It's not just that we know about God, but that we truly know God. It has the idea, you know, to, to give a little bit of an illustration is, you know, when you see brown goo in a jar, and you say, Sarah, well, what is that? And the label says, well, it's honey. And you can say, oh, 
It's honey. Isn't, isn't, isn't that great? We got some honey. Organic honey. Oh, even better, you know. But you just, you know that unconsciously. You haven't taken the time to unseal the top and to open it up and to actually put it on your tongue so that you might consciously know, oh, this is honey. Yes, the label is correct. This is the stuff. This is good. This is satisfying. This is sweet. This is amazing. Honey, that's a totally different kind of knowing that's happening. Check it out. The devil unconsciously knows the reality of God. As we talked about with our worship team on, on Monday night, he is a master theologian. He knows more about God than what you do or I do. But there is a different knowing that God grants us, and that is the conscious tasting and knowing of the Holy Spirit, knowing something of his manifest presence and glory. We are given the opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good, not just to have this academic, well, I kind of know about this God. Two different kinds of knowing. And what Paul is directly speaking to here is this He's saying, oh, that the spirit of revelation and of knowledge might be granted to you so that your, the eyes of your heart would be open, that you would have spiritual sensibilities to be able to experience, to consciously experience something of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he outlines, here are the kinds of experiences that he prays that we will receive from the Holy Spirit. You ready? Here we go. Three different things. The first thing he says, verse 18, is that we would know the hope to which we have been called. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying, oh, that you would experience the, manifest, the conscious experience of the Holy Spirit in such a way that your heart would be deeply assured in God. That you, would, you wouldn't be this waffling Christian who just has read the label so you kind of know, but you're a Christian who has come to know consciously, oh, this God who is rock solid, he is steadfast. He will not let me down. He will hold me all the way. It is this experience in the Spirit that gives this radical assurance in God, in the calling that he has placed upon us in saving us in Christ. But second, not only is it an assurance that we are to experience, but secondly, he's praying that you feel the wealth, the riches of the glory of the inheritance that we are in him and he is to us. All right, so this inheritance. This inheritance has the idea of family. Inheritance happens through family, through familial relationship, right? And so the idea here is that the inheritance is us being given to God, but God being given to us. And Paul is saying, oh, that you would come to experience this, taste this through the manifest presence of God. We could say it this way. On one hand, he's praying that you would experience the assurance of God, but secondly, that you would experience the love of God. That you would know that family connection, this inheritance that we are to God and that God is to us. That you would be assured in who God is, but also know this incredible love that you've been demonstrated, been demonstrated from him. And finally then, the third point, the other thing that Paul is saying, oh, that you would experience this, is resurrection power. This probably not only refers to the conscious realization of all that we have been saved from, as Paul will outline that in Ephesians chapter 2. But it probably also relates then to the necessity of the power uh, for actually doing what he says in Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle not against what? flesh and blood but against principalities there's a real war going on in our midst and Paul is saying oh that you would have tasted and seen that you would experience something of the presence of the spirit that would grant you something of power to stand against the enemy it's incredible now these three things assurance love 
and resurrection power. Just as a side note, I think these are the very things that Jesus experienced when he was baptized. The Holy Spirit came upon him, right? I believe that there was assurance being demonstrated in those moments. There was something of the love of the Father being declared. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And what do we see immediately after his baptism? But he's, he's empowered to go about the ministry that the Father has set before him. I believe it's the example that's set forth within the book of Acts. What do you see again and again? But these people encounter something of the incredible presence of God. And what is happening? They're assured in the things of God. It's not just a label they know, something they've studied. It's now something the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them. They've encountered God consciously, and it's granted them incredible assurance. They've been overwhelmed with his love, and they are empowered to be about this mission that Jesus has set before them. This is what Paul is praying for a church that had already come to faith. You get what I'm saying? In other words, there's more of God's presence to be known, and it's his presence that empowers our mission. In order for the church to be about her mission of filling all in all, to be a vibrant witness for Christ, we must come to consciously know, to experience the assurance of, the love of, and the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's one thing to just state that. So let's go on to point two. God's presence, this experience, I would say, this conscious experience, this tasting and seeing, right, must be altogether pursued. Not only must the presence of God empower the mission of the church, but the presence of God must be altogether pursued. Now, I've heard the objections quite a few times over the last so many years as we've walked through these kind of things. And one of the primary objections is this, but what about all the people who have prayed for and pursued an experience with the presence of God and it hasn't come? Aren't they just setting themselves up for disappointment? For emotional, perhaps even psychological letdown. What do we do with that? Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones states this. Recognizing that objection, recognizing those legitimate even concerns, he states this. Should we seek a conscious experience of the Holy Spirit? He states, it is our business to desire to attain always to the New Testament norm. We have no right to do anything else. We do not judge the Christian life by what we are, but by what the New Testament says. What is there about today, what is there about today that makes the conscious experience of the Holy Spirit exceptional? There is nothing, he says. God is the same, the power of the Spirit is the same, our needs are the same. Put all these things together. Should I seek this experience? Of course you should, Martin Lloyd-Jones states. He's saying we should never lower the Bible to our experience. The Bible becomes the bar then of our expectation, of our pursuits. If we lower uh, uh, the Bible to our own experience, you, you, will, you will lower it down to the point where you can do Christianity without faith, right? We don't want our experiences to rule this book. It is this book that sets the bar for our expectations for our pursuit. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying. Now, in this passage, I think we find some resolve to this concern, to this objection. We find that Paul desires this regenerate church to have a conscious experience of the Spirit of God. Paul feels the need to prayerfully pursue it for them. Paul is saying, I hope you get this. 
I, I hope you get the experience of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to pray for it. I'm going to stop amidst this theological rundown. I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power, that you just don't know about it, but you've tasted and seen that he is amazing, that he grants a wealth of assurance and love and power to be about the mission that he's granted you. This is what Paul is praying. He is pursuing. This is the whole point of the prayer. He is pursuing this experience for them. And if Paul is, is pursuing this experience for them, should not we today still pursue this experience of the Holy Spirit? That's the whole point. Should not Mercy Gate be about praying for this experience of the Holy Spirit? I believe absolutely we should be, as the New Testament has outlined to us, and as it is illustrated even in Paul's care for the church in Ephesus. Now, once again, let's get back to the objection. Now you may say, but what if God does not give a conscious experience of the Holy Spirit? What do we do with that? Do we just live in our disappointment? Well, we could look at other prayer passages in the New Testament and realize that this is what God promises, His presence. And He does so in a way that assumes our pursuit of His presence. So, for instance, Luke chapter 11, Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray, and his conclusion is this. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heaven, your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the promise of the Holy Spirit is put before us. Jesus is saying, you ask and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. This is what the Father is about. He's eager to dole out something of His Spirit upon us. It's a promise that Jesus gives. So, why don't we consciously experience Him when we ask? I've been praying, and I have not been receiving. What's up with this? Well, note the context of Luke chapter 11. In the context, verses 5 through 8, Jesus tells a parable about a guy who goes to his friend's house late at night because he had some company arrive at his house late at night and he doesn't have any food for them. So here's this guy, company arrives, I got no food for you. So what is he doing? He's going to his friend's house and he's asking his friend for help, All right? And he keeps knocking and knocking and, you know, going to the window and banging on the window. And his friend, even on the inside, is saying, hey, don't wake me up. It's late at night. Right. But he keeps on. He keeps knocking. He's shameless in his attempts to get the attention of his friend. He knows that he can be shameless in his attempts because he has the credibility of relationship already established. There's a relationship there that he can be shameless about trying to get something from his friend because they're friends. So Jesus says, because of this man's impudence, that is because of his shamelessness on the basis of that relationship, this guy's going to get what he's asking for. And that's something. Jesus will go on after this parable to state that familiar passage, right? He says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. The whole point is for us to recognize that there is a pursuit. And, and this asking and seeking and knocking has gradations, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say. It's a process of pursuit to get to God such that the Father might pour out His presence upon us. In other words, it's not just this one-off, I stick the coin into the you know, machine and I get what I want from it. It's not just this exchange that we have with God. God wants a relationship, right? And He wants then to utilize our pursuit of Him as well as the experience of Him. He wants to cultivate something of faith in us through the process of pursuing Him. We oftentimes come to God like someone would solicit a prostitute. We just want the experience. Forget the relationship, God. I just want to experience something from you. 
so that I can go on my weary way, living the way I want to live, without having my comforts and my dreams and my desires changed. The whole point of the pursuit is God uses that pursuit to refine our hearts for him such that when he comes, we're not just utilizing him like a prostitute, but we're saying, I will not be moved from this fountainhead of life. I'm going to keep coming after you and keep coming after you and keep coming after you. It's like Jacob. Remember, he's wrestling with God. and He's like, I'm holding on to you until you bless me. My heart needs to be changed. My life needs to be changed. I need your help. I'm coming to you in humility. I'm drawing near to you, trusting you are drawing near to me. I'm throwing my desires before you. I'm tossing my dreams to the wind so that I might have something of you. This is the whole point of the pursuit. It is not just this one-off, let me just grab a quick experience from God. That's nothing but soliciting a prostitute. God wants relationship. He wants your heart. That's why the Bible says early on that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, that everything would be his. And part of the pursuit is that God begins to tether to him all that we are so that when he comes with his manifest presence, we're ready to steward it and steward it rightly as it comes in relationship to us. Folks, I can't help but think that the Western church today is all too consumeristic. And I don't just say this for us. I say it for me. I process it for me. I, I just want it quick and easy. God, I want, I want to see fruitfulness. I, I, I want to see change in my life, but I just want it nice and easy. Right? And I think, you know, in, in a real sense, God does too. He doesn't want to make the process or the pursuit hard. But we just got so much junk in our hearts We have so much distraction going on. We want it just nice and easy, our way or no way. And God says, no, it's going to be a process of pursuit. Because once you've had it my way, you're not going to want it any other way. You'll taste and see that I am good through the process and through the experience of my manifest presence. He doesn't waste the pursuit. The pursuit is just as important as the experience. But this is the whole point. Should we, should we keep pursuing this, this, this experience of God's presence? Well, Paul is praying that way for crying out loud. He wants the folks in Ephesus to experience God in, 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 in deep, incredible ways. Not just, again, reading the label, but tasting and knowing something of the assurance, the love, the power of God among them. He wants them to understand this, but he also understands something of the pursuit. He's praying on their behalf. It's not just about us individually going after this pursuit of God's presence, but it's also us interceding for one another that it might, that we might together encounter something of the presence of God. Folks, it's, it's hard to be about mission, activity, sacrifice, when all we know is the label. You been there? We've just read the label, but we haven't tasted and seen. I guarantee you, you take that analogy a step further, like, you know, if you've only read the label, you become like one of those, um, you know, kids that, that are managing one of those little kiosks in the mall. Oh, they're just sitting back. Hey, anybody want this perfume? You know, they have no, there, there's no, like, zeal. There's no excitement. There's, they're just sitting... They're punching a clock. The mission of the church looks a lot like that today. Yeah, you should probably check out this Jesus. Yeah, he, he's so satisfying. He's the sip that satisfies. Point being, we only know the label. We haven't encountered it. We haven't tasted and seen. We haven't come to this incredible assurance that would say, ha, ha, ha. Like, you're out in the aisles of the mall, like, saying, you've got to taste this. You've got to have this. This is life transform. You've got to know this Jesus because he's incredible. He brings incredible assurance. He's incredibly loving. And, yes, he brings this incredible power so that you can walk in his ways and that you can stand against the enemy, that you, too, can be on mission for him, a channel of his presence to the barren places. That's a whole different kind of thing. 
But that's where I believe the church is at today. We've not tasted and seen. We're all too easily satisfied with our own things. Oh, I've spent 15 minutes this morning in prayer, you know, and whatever else. And it's like, on one hand, pastorally, I say, okay, good, that's a good start. <laughs> Absolutely. But there's so much more of God to be known and experience, and it's okay to hunger and thirst for his presence. It's really okay to pursue. And when you become discouraged, throw that discouragement at him. He wants that discouragement. He wants you to come after him and come after him and come after him that he really is the pearl of great price. I'm going to sell everything to buy that field, to get that one treasure. He really is that valuable. So what should we do with all of this? God's presence is essential for the mission of the church and his presence should be altogether pursued. This, of course, then is the meaning of Mercy Gate. It's how Mercy Gate informs our mission. Mercy Gate is meant to keep us focused on and dependent upon the presence of God in order to see the glory of Christ fill all in all. Do we not need, then, in conclusion, a fresh outpouring of the Spirit? Do we not need a conscious filling of the Spirit so that, as Jesus said, out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water? Charles Spurgeon encouraged his church, a metropolitan tabernacle in London, with this statement. He says, ask God to make you all that the Spirit of God can make you. Not only a satisfied believer who has drunk for himself, but a useful believer who overflows the neighborhood with blessing. What a wonderful thing a flood is. Go down to the river, look over the bridge, and see the barges and the other crafts lying in the mud. All of the king's horses and all the king's men cannot tug them out to sea. There they lie, dead and motionless, as the mud itself. What shall we do with them? What machinery can move them? Have we a great engineer? Tyler Clydesdale. Have we a great engineer among us who will devise a scheme for lifting these vessels and bearing them down to the river's mouth? No, it cannot be done. Wait till the tide comes in. What a change. Each vessel walks the water like a thing of life. What a difference between the low tide and the high tide. You cannot stir the boats when the water is gone, but when the tide is at the full, see how readily they move. A little child may push them with his hand. Oh, for a flood of grace, he says. May the Lord send to all our churches a great spring tide. Are you thirsty? <laughs> Are you pursuing? Are you seeking him? Are you desiring to taste the fresh and to see that he is good? This is what I believe is necessary for Mercy Gate to be about her mission of seeing the glory of Christ fill all in all. So I'm going to ask the musicians to come up here. And I want to pray first. But we're going to do a little response this morning. I want you to think at this point of that <laughs> shameless friend who said, Lord, I don't, I don't care, you know, I don't care what I look like. <laughs> I, I don't care to bang on your door at night and pound on your windows. I want your attention, Lord. I want to come after you with all that I am. So I want to pray and then just give you an opportunity to respond. This past week has been a week of response for me. <laughs> all right, Lord, yes. Yes, to be shameless in pursuing you. I want that. I want to get after you and all the vulnerability that you call me to. So I want to pray, and we'll respond together.
pray that the Spirit would come afresh upon us. So right now, Father, we thank you for your word. Spirit of God, we thank you for your presence even among us right now. Thank you that we know unconsciously that you are with us. Thank you even as the word has gone out and we've sung together, that there have been moments if we have our eyes enlightened to see you at work in our midst, bringing truth, kind of cross our hearts again, bringing the love, your love to overflow our hearts again. We've, we've sensed your nearness to us. We've sensed you working in our midst already. But Holy Spirit, we come before you and say we are in need of that springtide. We're in need of tasting and seeing again that you are good. We want to be rivers of living water to the world around us. We want to minister to this world something of your life-giving presence. But, oh, if we don't know it ourselves, how can we fulfill that you've, what you have placed before us? So, Holy Spirit, I give you just kind of the, the space to begin to clean us out. Where our affections have been given to other things, where our pursuits are after other things and not primarily after you, Holy Spirit, grant something of kindness that would move us to repentance. I pray against the enemy right now, the devil who would want to just come and confuse these moments. He knows where power comes from. He knows the one who is unrivaled. And he knows with a fresh tasting and seeing of the Spirit's goodness that if he can get in the way of that, he can get in the way of true change and true mission. So we pray against the enemy, his works and effects in these moments, for all the critique that might be raised up in our minds in these moments, for all the resistance that we might feel in these moments. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would shake those things right out of us. Shake it, Lord. Shake it out of us. We speak against that spirit of criticism who just wants to say lower the bar lower the bar lower the bar don't expect more from God don't expect more from God he will only disappoint you we heard that lie in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 we heard that lie that God is not good to fulfill his promises Satan you've used that one too many times so Holy Spirit we pray that you would take that lie and that criticism and that you would show it for what it is God, raise our expectations upon you. Raise our expectations according to your word on what your spirit intends to do in us and through us. Jesus, this is what you've died to see take place within your church. So we honor you right now in the pursuit. We deny the enemy. We deny him ground in these moments. We deny the criticism that comes to our minds and say, Jesus, you're worthy of the pursuit here and now. You're worthy to be followed. You're worthy that we would put on impudence, that we would put on some sense of shamelessness to pursue you because you are good and your promises remain that you will pour out your spirit So if the Lord is bringing some sort of conviction to your heart that says, man, I, got, I need to taste afresh and know. It's been too long. My soul is thirsty. My soul, yeah, has been given to all kinds of other things, but it hasn't been freshly made alive to Jesus. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to first to raise your hand 
And I, I just want to pray for those of you who, who say, you know what, yeah, I, I'm thirsty. I need to be about this pursuit. I need more of Jesus. This is a shameless opportunity. And if you're at home, I want to pray the same thing for you as well. Holy Spirit, we raise our hands to you. Not to some preacher up here. We raise our hands to you and say, Holy Spirit, we're, we're surrendering. <laughs> we're just surrendering to you, saying, Jesus, come by your Holy Spirit and come and clean us out, refresh our souls in your presence. Refresh our souls. Set, it, set us on a fresh pursuit of you. We don't want to know just the label. We want to taste and see that you are good. So even now, for each one that are raising their hands, Holy Spirit, would you come upon them? Ah, that's the way I hear it in my soul. Would you come upon them in, in liquid glory? God, that you would come upon them, that you would satisfy their hearts with your presence. God, may it be that the prayer of Paul would be true of them, that they would find in a pursuit of you, that fresh assurance, that fresh sense of love and empowerment to be about the mission that you've given them. Holy Spirit, would you fall, please? Would you fall, Lord? We're going to sing um, this final song. During the song, you're like, I want to take this pursuit one more step further. Shameless. <laughs> what I want us to do is for those of you who are like, yep, I want to get after this. Let's come up here and just have a time of prayer together. And we're going to pray for one another and just say, Lord, we're, we're throwing our hearts, but we're drawing near to you. Shamelessly, yeah, we can raise our hand, but shamelessly, I need to take a step of faith. I need to step out and actually be a part of this, right? So as this final song is sung, I'm just going to ask you to come on up, and together we're going to pray. Like there's no grand mystical stuff that I can give you, right? But we can pray like Paul prayed, that God would bring a fresh springtide upon our souls that we would know something again of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So if that's you, come on up. Let's pray. You guys can lead us in that final song.